How are you guys doing today? Good. Britt wanted me to remind you in a few weeks we've got men's retreat. It's going to be awesome November 4th. And so if you're a dude and you haven't signed up yet, I highly encourage you to sign up. Please do. It's going to be an awesome time. I've got a wedding to do that weekend, that Sunday. So I'm going to be there, I think, all day Saturday after that little rehearsal thing. So I'm going to be there. I hope you're there. Britt's going to be talking about the hats that men wear. It is going to be a phenomenal time. So sign up if you have not already. We are continuing this Sunday morning in our series entitled Enjoy, where we are studying through the letter or the book of Philippians. My name is Jed. It's a privilege to get to serve you as one of our pastors on staff. And in this letter and throughout this series, we have been talking about how to enjoy life despite our circumstances, whatever is facing us. And it has been a great series in my mind. Last week, Britt talked about the joy in knowing Christ. It was the section, obviously, prior to what we're going to talk about today. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, please do so. It sets up this message really well. This is the second and the last one. And then next week, Britt will be closing up the series. So it's going to be a good time. And then the week after that, one of my great friends and mentors, Jay Hewitt, he's going to become the guest speaker. I can't wait for Jay to be here. All right, let's get started. I want to tell you a little bit about my grandfather on my dad's side. We called him Tatai. Uh, Tatai was an incredible man, and he was yoked. I mean, the dude just had mad gains, great muscles. Uh, he would do this thing when we were kids where he'd come up and flex his bicep and have us pinch and try and kind of get skin on his arm uh, just to prove that his body fat percentage was still low even in old age. And I loved my grandfather. I loved how he would call me, he'd say, my boy. Uh, I thought that was great. Tatai was a farmer, uh, immigrated to the United States, uh, loved baseball, and he was a carpenter. And most of the gentlemen in my family prior to our generation, actually all of them, were incredibly handy. And it, it seems like that trait didn't get passed down to me or my cousins. Uh, you can put like a basketball or a football in my hands and I do okay. You can give me a Bible, that's all right. But give me a hammer or, you know, a saw and, man, I'll probably just hurt myself and mess up the project that we're on. So our A-team on Tuesday... Uh, that's why I just come in and say hello. And by the way, if you're a guy, our new bathrooms that are A-team installed, man, that is so awesome. Gary Winger, I'm just like going off on the side, but Gary Winger, uh, one of our congregants here, and then our A-team led by Tony Lewis, they put in new sinks in our men's bathroom, and those things look so good. Yeah, you can clap for that. Come on. That stuff is awesome. So... Again, I'm not very handy, but Tatai, every now and then, he'd invite me to come join him in the backyard to, to work on his projects, and I'm not sure why he did that, because I'm sure I made it worse, but I can remember us measuring stuff out on two-by-fours and him marking out with a pencil that, that, that thing he'd want me to saw down, and every now and then he would say these words, do it once, do it right, do it once, do it right. And as a carpenter, that makes sense. You don't want to be messing up wood. You don't want to be wasting time. So do it once and do it right. Because if you don't do it right the first time, you're going to have to do it again. Correct? Well, I searched up on Google. Uh, Tata didn't come up with that proverb. I don't know who did, uh, but it was something that he shared with me. And it's something that has stuck with me for all of these years. But the reality is 
As much as we want to do things right the first time, we get a lot wrong. You and I get a lot of things wrong. Uh, If our lives were typed out on a Microsoft document sheet, uh, you'd see a lot of red and green squiggly lines, I bet. Uh, You and I are prone to messing things up. And this morning, we're going to talk about relationships and, and how we tend to get those things wrong. But before we do that, let me just humor you for a little bit. We don't use them anymore, but back in the olden day, uh, like at the church I grew up, we had church bulletins for announcements. You know, we weren't privileged to have like a Becky who just does a great job. So we would, you know, someone would type it out and then you would read it for your announcements. Yes? So let me share some announcements gone wrong. Uh, I'm going to read some church bulletin excerpts uh, that shouldn't have made it through, but someone wasn't paying careful attention. So here's the first one. Uh, life groups meet on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. for food, fun, and fellow whipping. <laughs> Heather Fretz, let's, let's not encourage people to do that, all right? Um, second one, ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. <laughs> I, I get what you're trying to communicate there, but probably not the way it should have been stated. Uh, another, no, oh, at the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our co- choir practice. <laughs> oh, man, that is so good. I bet the choir director loved that Sunday. <laughs> and apparently things are on at 7 p.m. This evening at 7 p.m., there will be a hymn scene in the park across from the church. Feel free to bring a blanket and come prepared to sin. Whoa! I shared that one in first service, and I looked at Britt, and we were both like, oh, but I'm doing it again. And uh, for those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. (laughs) Comma placement, my friends. (laughs) Makes a world of a difference. So, yeah, that's like the best part of the message. I wish we could just laugh together, but let's get to serious things. I I mean, it's funny. We all make mistakes. We all err. Uh, but it's difficult when it's not just an announcement sheet. What about in your actual life, in my life? What about our relationships? Uh, what about those things that we say or we didn't say, that thing we did or we didn't do that we wish we could have? I don't know what it is for you, but we all have those things that we have done incredibly wrong. And the reason why I start there is because I'm convinced that the letter of Philippians was actually penned by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison because this church that he wrote to in Philippi had a lot going right, but something wrong. There was so much going right for this community. It is a letter amongst Paul's that is so different because he doesn't go after them at the very beginning. There isn't that thing that he is angling at. He, he doesn't have harsh words for them. It's all warmth and, and just love and concern and care. But as we get to the very end of this letter, we see him bring to light these two women that were incredibly important to their church. And I don't know about you guys, have you ever felt like you came on a Sunday morning and the pastor just speaking to you? Like whatever was being said from the stage was just really getting after something in your own life. Well, this is that, but kind of on steroids, because when we're up here, we don't have like secret information to your lives. 
So we can't just call out your names and say, hey, so-and-so, you ought to do this better or you should stop doing that. That's just not how it works. And thank God it's not like that because no one would come to church. But look at what happens here in Philippians 4, verse 2, again, towards the very end of this letter. Paul writes these words, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, I've heard different pastors over the years talk about how these two women are, you know, concrete, left in Scripture, for their arguing, and they kind of make jokes about how ridiculous that is. But really, the, the way you ought to flip what's happening here is to realize that in the first century, you have two women that are incredibly important to the life of a local body. That's the way that you ought to read this passage of Scripture. They are so important to this local church. They have done so much work alongside the Apostle Paul that they and the relational strife, whatever it is that is causing friction between them, will hold the church back. And so Paul is making sure, and again, he's not chastising them. He's just bringing it to light. He's just saying, Yodia, Sintiki, I urge you to be of the same mind. And the reason why I'm convinced that this letter was written with them in mind is because that language of same mind, Paul uses seven times. In the English, we see variants, but seven times in the Greek, Paul employs this language that's almost like jab, 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 knockout but in love and in care and concern. So here's a question that I have for us this morning. What prevents us from getting things right? What's the stuff that gets in the way of our relationships that hinder us from just having perfect relationships? Uh, there's not one person in this room who could talk about their friendships and their family relationships or if you have a spouse or if you have kids or work relationships, teammate relationships, academic. I don't care what it is. If you are in relationship with other people, which you are, you and I have probably got a lot wrong. Yes? So what prevents us from doing that? Let me read what Paul writes prior to this turn in the letter. Verse 16, he says, Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. And that refers to what Britt talked about last week, about Christ and pursuing him for the rest of our lives. Verse 17, he writes, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. Here's the first thing that I think commonly gets in the way or prevents us from doing things the right way, God's way. Our priorities are often formed by our pride. And if we think about sin, we could probably deduce that most of it, if not all of it, stems from the issue of pride. And us prioritizing things in a way where we put ourselves over someone else, or we put what we want over what is evident God would want for us. We talked about our priorities. We would probably have our ideal priorities. Yes, maybe we would say God first, 
family second, I don't know, work or church, fantasy football, something like that. But, but then if we actually looked at our lives, if we examined the minutes and the hours and the days and the weeks and the months and the years, I bet our priorities wouldn't quite match up to our ideal way of organization, correct? Maybe number one would be work or financial stuff. You know, maybe we would put friends or acceptance. Maybe God would find his way there. Maybe fantasy football would be higher than God. I don't know. It's football season. You and I are human beings that struggle with getting things right, and the importance and the priority that we place on things typically stems from us feeling like, I know better, or I deserve better. And if you think about relationships in your life that are fractured or have contention, Perhaps it's because there's an element of you or me struggling to do, as Paul has written about previously, to in humility consider others or regard others as what? Better than yourself. What would it be like for you and me if in our relationships with other people, maybe even in the heat of an argument, we were hit by these words of the Holy Spirit brought to our attention what has been here for centuries, to consider others better than yourself? What if in that moment you looked across at that person and you remembered the call is for me to get lower because you're better than me? Here's the second thing that I think gets in the way. Our pride, unfortunately, often reinforces our perception. Now, our perception refers to an awareness that we get that isn't just physical. It's not just what is seen, but it's really how we interpret things with our other senses. And what's unfortunate about us when we approach relationships or tension or conflict from a position of pride, whether it's subconscious or consciously, we tend to cement whatever it is that person is doing or saying to affirm what we feel. So if I am in an argument with a friend and I'm already looking at them like they're the issue and they are the problem, well then unfortunately more than likely everything they do or say I'm going to interpret in a way that elevates me and further belittles them. You guys know what I'm talking about, yes? So here's how Paul contrasts what we are inclined or disposed to do. He says this in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. And then immediately after, he says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Did you catch that very first part? But our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? You know, when I was 15, I've shared this before, but it was years ago. I was at the DMV. I think I just finished up my permit 
test, the handwritten one. And I was sitting outside on a concrete bench, and to my left were these two older gentlemen. I don't know, they were maybe in their 20s or so. And for whatever reason, they started talking to me. <laughs> okay, I was a teenager. I'm not, oh my gosh. I, not old, like, they're older than me. <laughs> so these two dudes that were older than me, and they just started talking to me. They're, they probably asked, what are you doing here? And I probably said, like, my permit test, or like, my permit test, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why, but they started encouraging me to make good decisions. And they shared that the two of them uh, had done drugs really young and were actually in gangs. And... Yeah, so I just started talking, talking to them about Jesus. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I started talking about John 3.16, because that's important. You know, God loving the world, and I'd memorized that Bible verse. And I'm sharing, and at the end of it, one of them says, you know what, man, thanks so much. Maybe, maybe it's time to get back to church. And I'm like sitting there like, yeah, Jed, you're awesome. <laughs> Ugh, adolescence, what a great time. And so, to my right, there had been a gentleman sitting there the entire time just listening to our conversation. He was this big dude. And, and as soon as they departed, he started peppering me with questions. It's like he was just prepared. And the very first question he asked was, what was Jesus' mission? And I'm, and I'm like, the, the cross, right? Jesus came to die for our sins. And and he said, what was Jesus' mission? What did he talk about the most? And I'm like, the cross? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and as he's asking, asking me these questions, I'm getting really intimidated. I'm starting to sweat. I don't know how to answer these things. I haven't been to Bible college yet. I don't know the answers. And so in my mind, I'm thinking he's either messing with me or he's just this really brilliant atheist and he's about to destroy my face in, in the next five minutes. Well, after asking me those questions, he removed his sunglasses, and it just changed so quickly uh, from this tough exterior to just the warmest green eyes. And I realized in that moment, okay, this guy's for me. He's not trying to destroy me. And then he said these words, son, look up. He said, you see the sky? You see the birds? You see this parking lot and he's, these people? He said, there's something greater at hand here. He said, if you want to learn anything about Jesus, then for the rest of your life, I encourage you to learn about what he talked about more than anything else. Jesus talked about the kingdom. And it's true. I mean, when Jesus first burst onto the scenes, his words and ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the word repentance, which we talk, talked about before, it's for our minds to be changed, not just for our actions to shift. Obviously, our actions are preceded by the way we see things and, and how we look at this world. And so when I think about the kingdom, I think about the king that's at the heart of it. So in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well, it's like he's dropping these clues because you don't have a kingdom without a king. And so essentially when Jesus says these, it ought to spur ideas amongst those listening with, well, who's the king? And what is he going to be like? 
And then in this kingdom, it is this unexpected, upside-down, paradoxical reality where the things of this world just don't match up to the way God would have it. So this king doesn't come in power, but he comes to serve. This king doesn't, this king doesn't come with a type of force that forces people to these things, but again, he comes lower, and he shows, and he just is. And so when Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, when he employs this political language to this Roman colony where being a Roman citizen, like the rest of the Roman world, is a highly prized possession and something that is incredibly favorable, he is saying, remember, this goes beyond so much more than the country that you're from or the nation that you are a part of or whatever you envision this world to be. This is about the kingdom. This is about this unexpected life where the king unexpectedly does. And you can live that life as well. So here's the question that I have for us. How does God empower and entrust us to make things right? If we're reminded that our citizenship is in heaven, if we are reminded that we are called to do and say and be the unexpected in our relationships and to this world, following after Jesus the King, in step with the Holy Spirit toward God's the Father, what does that actually look like? How does He empower and entrust us? And I say those words because... He empowers us, as in He gives us the tools, He gives us the commandments, but there's an entrusting, there's a stewardship, there's a choice that we have to make about whether or not we will walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul would talk about in Galatians 5, 21. So to answer that question, uh, I'd like to turn your attention to the screen because there's a really wise person that I'd like to uh, have share the answer. Love you, pal. Bye. Pretty cool. That's Staden. He just turned six the other week. He's our oldest son. Uh, love that little guy. And uh, he's in kindergarten this year. Last year he was in TK, transitional kindergarten. It was awesome. And I only get to drop him off twice. Actually, no, three times a week now. But last week during TK, I dropped him off most mornings. And We'd already worked on Bible verses before, like Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, or 1 John 4, 19. Uh, we'd worked on uh, the Shema. Um, but this was the one that I really wanted him to get because he's just wired in a way that I know someday when these words begin to sink in developmentally, they're going to be really helpful for him. 
because of just his nerves and his restlessness and his fear. And so I'm just really hopeful that someday when these aren't just things that he's memorized, but he's aware of what some of these words mean and, and God's doing a work in his heart, uh, that he'll be surprised at what's already been there for years. This is how I think God empowers us. He provides us with perspective after we come to him in prayer. You, you saw that section that, that Thad recited where he says, I'll just say it all because I might lose it if I'm trying to do it in the middle because I memorize the kid from the top. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we come to God in prayer, and I think the key here, what we see, is that we don't just expect God to change or swap out our circumstances. If, if you have a relationship that's difficult and, and it's a struggle, you can't just snap a finger and say, okay, God, do your work. Uh, because often when we come to God in prayer, I feel as though we're inclined to say, God, would you just fix that person? Uh, God, would you change their mind? Would you change their heart? Or God, if you would just help them see things clearer, in Jesus' name. Uh, we're prone to pray like that, but really because prayer is an exchange, how much more powerful for us to ask God to not just exchange the circumstance, but to exchange our perspective so that we ourselves begin to see things in the right way through his lens of grace and redemption and humility. That's what he is calling us to. And in our relationships, if we are able to approach them in that manner, I can guarantee you God's already going to begin changing things. Why? Because he's changing you. And isn't it true that once we ourselves start looking at things differently, they just start to change? we start to act or speak or move differently. Here's the second thing that we are employed and entrusted and empowered to do. He provides us with peace after we consistently pursue it. Peace, which more literally and bigger picture should reflect wholeness and rightness, isn't just this feeling or the sentiment that we get that all things are gravy and good. There's something bigger at hand here. God's reconciling all things. We're called to be a part of that. And our relationships obviously play into that as well. But peace doesn't just come without us working towards it. Jesus says in Matthew 6, blessed, or Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. But I like this section in Luke chapter 11, where after sharing a little story about what it means to persevere in prayer, Jesus says this then in verse 9, So I say to you, it's on the screens, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there any among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? 
Or if the child asks for an egg, we'll give a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, here's the key, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It's so easy for us to cookie-cutter bits and pieces of the Bible. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversation with folks and they talk about, just ask for it. Claim it. Say it in His name. He'll give it to you stand under the spout where the blessings pour out type of deal. But Jesus is very clear about what he's building towards. It's all built towards asking for what? The Holy Spirit. And if we look at John chapter 14, where Jesus really goes into just this beautiful section about what the Holy Spirit, the advocate, will be for us, we see why that's who we ought to ask for why it's so important for us to ask for more of a recognition that God is in us and with us, that His Spirit is actively and can be, I should say, a part of our lives that we can actually walk, actually walk in step with Him. Because in our relationships, if we are neglecting that God is in us and inviting us and calling us, well, then we're just going to do what we're inclined to do ourselves without Him. Which, again, we said at the very beginning, we get a lot of things wrong, don't we? So here's how I'd like to start closing this up for us. Every single week, we've had a statement or two that says, if you want to enjoy life, then, or joy comes from, and here are the two things that I would remind us. says, if you want to enjoy life, don't neglect the difficult saying that God is calling you to do. I don't know, I wish I could maybe have it sit even longer in silence, but you probably already have a name. You probably already have a recent memory. I mean, maybe it was on the way to church today. Something that happened this weekend. Maybe it's years worth of enmity and holding things in. I don't know who that person is or what the context of that relationship is, but I would highly encourage you to not neglect the hard but worthwhile thing that God is calling you to do. And to not approach it in a way where you are already saying, well, it's not going to work, or that person's this or that, or Drop anything that would narrate to yourself that you're a victim of that and just allow God to do the work in you. And I don't know what the outcome is going to be for that relationship or that thing, but just I would walk in step with him and see. Try. Try again. And here's the last one. If you want to enjoy life, well, then continue to remember the grace of God for all that you've gotten wrong. I've shared it so many times from this stage because it's hit me so much. Years ago, during the Christmas season, during Advent, when I was studying through words again, I was studying about joy, and it hit me. I, I don't know why I'd overlooked this for so many years, but joy is the awareness of God's grace. And so to have joy, if we want to have joy, well, then we're being called to grace over and over and over. 
again, not just grace for ourselves, but then grace for others. God's grace for all of us. We're all on the same playing ground now. And to close it up today, I I wanted to make sure that I did this, especially after showing a really cute video of you know, my six-year-old son, because it'd be really easy to show that video and to walk off this stage and to be like, great, you know, now everyone at church just really believes I'm an awesome dad, and my son's memorizing Bible verses, and yeah, that's the exact opposite of what I'd want to communicate to you. You know, when I think about all that I've gotten wrong and the area in my life where I've gotten the most wrong, I'd say it's happened in the last eight years, being married and having kids. Seriously, it, it's so hard. I, I'm reminded over and over again of my pride and my selfishness and, and just how difficult it is for me to walk in the step with the Spirit in my home. 35833 to Bailey Street. It's like, I, it's not hard. It's really not that difficult to sit up on the stage and talk about Jesus. But it's a lot more difficult to walk in step with Him apart from this platform and stage. And I'm really grateful for all that God is changing and He's doing. But several weeks ago, uh, I was dropping off that at school and and I said, Dad, um, would, you, would you like it if, if you and Daddy spent more time together? And he said, yes. And I said, I, I'd love that, bud. We, we should do that more. And, and I said, well, what would, what would you like to do if we did that? And he said, play. <laughs> you know, and we play a lot, but apparently there's a lot more playing that we can do. And I said, well, is there anything else that you'd like to do? He said, read. I'm like, okay, we can read more. And I said, well, what if, what if we talked more? Because Dad and I, we, like, our conversations are really short, you know? I, I don't do the greatest job asking him more questions because it's my fault. I'm not even going to blame it on him. It's my fault. So I said, okay, bud, how about tonight... When Daddy gets home from work, we'll play, we'll read, and then we'll talk. And he said, okay, Daddy. And I dropped him off at school, and I'm, I'm driving back to church thinking, all right, I'm going to make it happen. So get home that night. We play, we wrestle, we box, all that stuff that we normally do. Uh, we read a little bit, and then we lay down in, in bed. I put him to bed, and we're laying down across from each other, and I'm just talking to him about his day. And Thadden, like I said earlier, he's got a lot of nerves already, um, a very introverted internal processor, um, just a lot of things that remind me of myself in terms of like my physical tics to, to manage uh, my nerves. Uh, I still have them actually. If you really watched me closely before I get on stage, I have like kind of a processor series of things that I physically do to get myself ready, as crazy as that sounds. And so I see these things in my son, and I want to help him navigate through that stuff. And, 
And so I said, hey, bud, remember that, that passage that we memorized in Philippians? I said, let's say it together. And so we're saying it, and I ask him about, you know, sometimes being nervous or scared. And I'm telling him, you know, Thad, and the reason why Daddy had you memorize this is because you know, I was really nervous and scared as a kid. I still am. And um, this has been a passage of Scripture that has really helped me. And... And so it's just a really sweet moment, right? And then I said, Dad, how do you feel right now? And he said, happy. And uh, I just said, dude, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry for... Not, not always giving you as much as, as I know that I should be giving you. And I said, that and do you forgive me? Because that's something that Mallory, my great wife, has introduced into the language of our home. You know, do you forgive me? We apologize to our kids. And unfortunately, we've had to apologize a lot. And Mal and I talk a lot at night about how we really hope by the grace of God there's less apologizing as they get older. And it's happening. But uh, I said, do you forgive me? And he said, yeah, I forgive you, Dad. <clears throat> we get a lot wrong. I get a ton wrong. There's not one person in this room who doesn't need to be reminded of the grace of God for all that we've gotten wrong. And, and I would hope and pray that for you, if, if you are sitting here thinking about that person or that relationship and you feel helpless or hopeless because you've already screwed up so much and you don't feel like there's any return or there's any coming back. I can't guarantee you that things are going to be fixed or made right, but I can absolutely guarantee you that God holds true to his promise. And, and the work that he's going to begin in you, as we study at the beginning of this letter, if he started it, he's going to continue it and he's going to finish it. But we're a part of that. And so do not neglect what he is calling you to do. If it's an apology towards your kid, if it's an apology towards a supervisor or an employee at work, if it's an apology towards an old friend or even an ex-spouse, I don't know, whatever, whomever it is, I encourage you, highly encourage you to trust God, I encourage you to trust him and fall through that and just see what he does in you and through you. Let's pray.